Not sure what to make for dinner? Need some inspiration? Mondays and Wednesdays, join Gabriel and his food hero guests on The Dinner Special. And now, here's your host, Gabriel So. Welcome to The Dinner Special. I am Gabriel So, and I am so psyched to have Alexandra Stafford of Alexandra's Kitchen joining me here today. Allie grew up in a home where cooking from scratch was the norm. After college, she enrolled in cooking school and subsequently worked at various catering companies and restaurants. Allie's two years in the Fork Restaurant Kitchen in Philadelphia, where she became sous chef, was the experience that's shaped what and how she cooks today. Apart from her blog, Allie writes a column a bushel and a peck for Food 52 and contributes to the Baking Steel blog. Thank you for being here today, Allie. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, let's start from the beginning. You grew up in a home where making homemade bread, salad dressing, chicken stock, and cooking from scratch was totally the norm. Can you share what it was like to grow up in a home where cooking and food was so valued? The thing is, it's like I didn't think anything of it growing up because it's just what always was around. I think I did start thinking about it in high school a little bit because I went to a boarding school. I was a day student and my mom, my dad, my stepdad actually all taught at the boarding school. So I still came home at night, but I often ate many of the meals in the dining hall. Lunch, of course, but dinner too. It was just kind of the social thing to do. And a lot of my friends were boarders. The breakdown was like 70% boarding, 30% day students. So you know, I would eat a lot of the meals. I played sports. So after sports, we'd go to the dining hall, have dinner. And then every so often I would invite my friends over for dinner at my house, you know, and they were always just blown away. They were like, what is this bread? You made this, you know, what do you mean you made this like from a bread machine? Or they just didn't understand that. And this was just a bread that my mom would whip up all the time. It was just no big deal. And just everything. I mean, it was like they were just like, you know, at the table, just kind of getting as much as they could. You know, it was just such a treat for them. And it was still a treat for me. I mean, I appreciated it, but I had it all the time. Anyway, I had toast for breakfast. I had the meals on the weekends. And then I think I probably really started appreciating it when I was in college. My senior year, I lived off campus with a roommate. And so we were cooking a lot. And that's when I was calling my mom more for like, how did you know, how did you make that chicken that I love? And why is this chicken so much better? And it was because my mom always used chicken thighs and not chicken breasts. And I would hear her say the thighs are more flavorful, but, you know, until I really cooked breasts and were like, these aren't good. Like, (laughs) there's a difference. Then I had all these questions for my mom. And that's when I really started kind of recording the recipes and gathering the recipes that I loved. And yeah. Well, when you were home from boarding school, were you more of an observer in the kitchen or were you not interested at all? Were you interested in cooking? I was. I was interested in what my mom was doing. I would say the extent of my help in the kitchen growing up was she taught me how to make the salad dressing. So I'd make the salad dressing and I would assemble. I remember always assembling like the Greek salad. She's 100% Greek, not from Greece, but we'd make the Greek salad with Aunt Phyllis's salad dressing or this other dressing from the Chez Panisse vegetables cookbook. I would chop the shallots and macerate them in the vinegar. I would do that. I would set the table. I loved like baking. So I would help make bread. And she had this other, in addition to sort of this peasant bread that she would make all the time, she had this bakery lane soup bowl. It's like bakery lane bread and soup, I think it's called just this old. And that was the sort of book that she always made these honey whole wheat loaves or these oatmeal brown sugar. So I would make bread. That was it though. I was never really making 
I feel like until I was in college, I wasn't in the summer. That's when I would really start helping with, you know, skewering chicken and throwing it on the grill. But growing up, it was very minimal. Well, you mentioned that, you know, when you were in college and you were fending for yourself, you know, you really started calling your mom for her recipes and, you know, finding out about the dishes that you really loved growing up. After college, you went to cooking school. Did you always know that you wanted to have a career that involved food and cooking? You know, I think that it was really my senior year in college that things, I thought, this is really fun. I really like cooking. And I think I also thought, if I'm going to do something else, you know, I majored in economics. I had this, like, I felt like I should do something like important, you know, and I thought if I'm going to do something kind of fun or a little bit different, I need to do it now versus later. You know, it seemed right. My husband now, my boyfriend at the time was living in Philadelphia. So I moved to Philadelphia. I found the school and I just thought I would just go for it. But it wasn't, I think in my head, I thought, gosh, I would love to run a restaurant, you know. And so I'm glad I had the experience of going to cooking school and then working in restaurants because it did make me realize what it takes to run a restaurant. What was the most challenging part of cooking school for you? Well, first of all, it was, <laughs> I don't know how I should say this. I found the most low budget cooking school that I could go to because it was like, I was like, I'm not going to spend a lot of money. I mean, some of the cooking schools I looked into were, I mean, 30 to $35,000 a year. And I thought, I can't do this. So the instruction was uneven, I should say. There was one chef who was French. His name was Chef Posh. And he was amazing. I so looked forward to his classes and to his instruction. The rest of it, you know, some of it was, a lot of it was, sitting in a classroom and it was important things learning the history you know of sort of modern cuisine or whatever you know but I just wanted to be in the kitchen I just wanted to be cooking and learning and I think I thought that I had to go to culinary school to work in a restaurant and when I went and applied for a job at a catering company I mean I was so nervous and I like dressed up and they were like, you're hired. Like you promised you'll show up to work on time. Like when can you start? They didn't care that I had gone to culinary school. And in fact, when I worked at Fork, the chef at the time, he preferred people who had never gone to culinary school because in his experience, the kids coming from culinary school, they felt like they knew something and they really didn't, you know, maybe they had two years of, I mean, probably people coming from the CIA know a lot, you know, but coming from other schools, it's just, you know, they think they know things and they don't. And so he preferred kind of having people just who had passion and just raw, who were very raw, who he felt he could just kind of mold. And so, I mean, the cooking school I went to, it was only six months and it was a good experience, but I don't ever actually encourage people to go to cooking school. I just say, try to just go to 50 places, just tell them you'll work and, you know, one of them will work out, you know? Well, maybe if, you know, cooking school is not the best for learning cooking from your experience, was there something that you learned in cooking school that wasn't cooking? Well, you know, how can I say this? Almost every single one of my classmates had been in prison or had some sort of criminal record. And this is what they were doing to kind of really make it, you know, and it gave me a taste, I guess I should say, of who I would be working with in restaurants. And it was anybody who's worked in a restaurant kitchen. I mean, the turnover is so high. It's just, I mean, in the two years I was at Fork, I think I saw the kitchen turnover maybe twice, you know, maybe there were two or three people. I don't even know, actually, I'd have to think about that. But it was very, and the same thing with the 
The catering company was actually a little bit more stable, but there were people who were just, you know, I would see and then I would never see again. Besides the turnover, you know, that's obviously something that's quite similar in the restaurant or the food industry. You know, can you maybe share the differences and similarities between working for a catering company compared to a restaurant? So I would say the catering company, you know, there were sort of two aspects. When I was like in the catering kitchen, we were doing prep all day, you know, just prepping and prepping. And it gave me, I remember realizing, gosh, this can be really tedious because, you know, we'd have to assemble, I don't know, a hundred Asian noodle nests or we'd have to, it was just a lot of the same thing over and over and over again. But there was something kind of, I mean, I still learned a lot from the repetition and learning how to use sort of like industrial saran wrap, you know, wrapping trays to make sure nothing would, you know, spill, you know, in transport. And then even sort of on the jobs, I would say there were still sort of periods of intensity where you had to work quickly and get things out and things that were tricky. You know, I remember one job, they were serving tuna and the chef had made whatever the contraption was that holds all the trays, he turned it into sort of a warmer and the tuna got totally overcooked. So when he went to slice it, every single piece of tuna was and this was supposed to be like a raw, you know, seared tuna. It was just, so just a disaster, you know? And so then there was the stresses that came along with that. And then there was, you know, intensity and, you know, getting, turning plates out. But when I switched and was working in the restaurant, I just realized how much more, at least for me, it felt much more intense, sort of like when lunch service hit, it was just this an hour of just orders coming in. And then, I mean, obviously the same thing at dinner and then Sunday brunch too was really big at Fork. And I worked the omelet station for a year and I just remember the omelet orders coming in and then, you know, some of them being egg white and then, you know, just trying to get the timing right of all the, you know, six or eight pans in front, trying to get it right. And then also there, then Fork also had sort of these, they had a private room in the back. So then, Every so often at the same time as like Sunday brunch, you'd be doing omelets for the party. I mean, it was just, I remember never feeling so overwhelmed or so kind of focused, but also stressed and just trying to manage so many things at the same time. That's, I felt was sort of the biggest difference. On prep days, you know, at the restaurant or in the mornings, there's still that same you know, we would make soup in these enormous pots. And so you're cutting carrots and onions and so over and over and over again. So the similar sort of kind of repetition, but it was in a different kind of way. The restaurants just sound really a lot more intense from the way you're putting it. Yes, it was. It was more intense for sure. Well, you worked your way to becoming sous chef at Fork Restaurant in Philadelphia. And you've written that this experience shaped what you cook and how you cook today. Can you talk a bit about this experience and why you feel like it was such a big influence on the way you cook? Well, I think, first of all, the owner of the restaurant, Ellen, she was one of the first restaurants to open in Old City. And it was, I mean, years before I got there. But from the beginning, her thing was, you know, buy fresh, buy local. So she was really, for me, was sort of the introduction. She introduced me to that kind of concept. And Philadelphia has a really actually incredible farm to table movement. I hate to use that word because it just sort of seems overused now. But at the time, I remember it was really new for me. I thought, oh, I just, I didn't know that people would really care about where these tomatoes came. On all over the menu, it was sort of, 
every tomato or whatever was, you know, labeled from whatever farm it came from. And so that was really new to me. And I would see the farmer. I mean, we would, of course, get deliveries from big, you know, wholesale companies, but the farmers would come and they would bring their, and that was really, really cool to me to see. So that would be the first thing. And then I would say the chef, Tien, any chance we could, or he could, we would ride our bikes to Chinatown and we would eat lunch at some, he was Vietnamese, but there were three Vietnamese restaurants that he liked all over Philadelphia and he would order different things at different ones. So I, I kind of learned like what to order, where. So he opened my eyes to a whole like world of food outside. And it wasn't just kind of like little, we would go to other, you know, he loved Italian food. He loved French food. We would go to not really nice restaurants. We would go to hole in the walls. So he introduced me kind of to just the sort of restaurant scene in Philadelphia and what people were cooking, but also just watching him cook was I mean, such an incredible experience watching him kind of break down three whole salmon, you know, like from fish down to breaking them and he would fillet it and then take out all the bones and then portion them into perfect like six ounce pieces. Then to just seeing how he made all of his soups and how he would always talk about how soups like were the money makers of the restaurant because it was just with all of these kind of like ingredients that cost nothing and how they would save everything. Every single scrap of meat and vegetable would go into this big pot for meat stock. And then just some of the foods he made, he made this chicken curry that was so amazing. He would just whip up these, he would buy these like fresh rice noodles in Chinatown at this one store called Ding Ho. And he would just cut them up and he would just make this like sauce with like fish sauce and lime and just toss in tons of herbs. And it was like, I had never eaten that kind of food, like so fresh and just so fast. And it was like the most delicious thing in the world. Well, you mentioned earlier the craziness of a commercial restaurant kitchen. And now you talk a little bit about, you know, all the stuff that you learned in the kitchen and how inspiring it was for you. Do you ever miss being in a restaurant kitchen? I do. I absolutely do. I wish, honestly, my regret is that I didn't spend more time in restaurant kitchens before I had kids because it is something I realized that the hours are just, you know, it's hard. And I mean, and the pay is not great, you know, and it's just, I wished I had kind of had one more experience outside of four because I definitely think felt burnt out. I was just thought, okay, I'm, this is not for me, but you know, I'm not going to open up a restaurant. I'm not going to be the chef of a restaurant. I think I'm done, you know? So if I'm not going to do this, why am I still working in a restaurant? I need a change. And I wished I could have just seen one other kitchen or learned from one other chef, just sort of seen, because there is something, you know, Gabrielle Hamilton and her book, what is it? Blood, bones, butter. I forget the order. She talks about at one point, sort of like the satisfaction of like, having a to-do list and with like crossing things off with a black Sharpie. And I remember that kind of always in starting the day and there'd be a hundred things that you have to start in the beginning. You know, you can't just do one thing and then go to the next. It's like you have to start five or six or 10 different things. And then slowly over the course of the day, you start seeing the progress and there's something so satisfactory about that. And I do miss that. I don't know. I do love cooking. I love making food. I do have this long standing dream of trying to open up a cafe or something and I just am too afraid about the time commitment that I would miss like my children's like, you know, childhoods. <laughs> well, Allie, with your blog, when you left professional cooking, did you know that you wanted to start a blog? No, I didn't. Blogs were totally new. And in fact, I remember when a friend told me, I think I was maybe still working in restaurants. And I remember she said that 
she was going to start a blog. And I thought, that is the strangest thing I've ever heard. Like, who cares what you have to say? Like, what are you going to write about? You know, and then when I left the restaurant, I thought, okay, I would love to write about food and write about the things I'm discovering. So there was a small newspaper in Philadelphia. And I just like walked into the office one day and said, like, do you have a food department? (laughs) And they didn't, but they wanted one. So I just started writing for them. So I was writing maybe twice a week for them. And basically, I was discovering so much in Philadelphia or thinking back on kind of the experiences I had had for the past four years in the restaurants and catering companies. And I was like, I want to, you know, start recording this. And the paper was so small. I was discovering more things than I was able to kind of put in the paper every week. And maybe some things weren't really appropriate to put in the paper or just not appropriate, but it wasn't just the right space. So that was sort of how it started. I thought, okay, well, I'll start a blog so that I can at least kind of just document what I'm doing in Philadelphia and finding and We'll see how it goes. I really didn't care about it at all in the beginning. I would write an entry and hit post and publish or whatever, and then I would go off. I didn't care about posting anything to Facebook or Twitter or trying to drive traffic. In the beginning, it was just kind of a journal. Then we moved across country, so I kind of documented our cross-country travel. Then I would say I'd have to look back at the archives, but it wasn't until we kind of moved back. So we'd been in California for three years, then back to Virginia, and I had two kids And I was at home more and I posted a couple of recipes and I remember just kind of getting like a really good response from some, you know, some of the comments were like, you know, I love your recipes or this is the most delicious. And I think one of them was this buttermilk blueberry breakfast cake and it was my mom's recipe and on it she has like written like baby boy loves this was my younger brother, you know, and like lots of people love this breakfast cake. And I thought I love doing this. I love sharing family recipes. I love you know, I love making people happy with food. This is really important to me. I think now I want to spend more time on my blog, making the recipes, you know, really kind of thoughtful and not necessarily foolproof, but mostly, you know, tested before I published them and being there to respond to comments. Right. Well, I mean, now in addition to your blog, you write a column on Food 52. How did this come about? Well, okay, I was in Virginia and I remember I got an email from one of the editors and she just said, you know, we're looking for contributors. Would you be interested in contributing? And this, again, I think at this point I had two kids and I didn't have any childcare at first. I was just like, I'm home. I'm going to, you know, this is what I'm doing. And I just was really nervous about the time commitment. So I wrote back and I said, oh, I don't know if I can. I just am worried about doing a good job. I sort of feel like I can barely get up like one blog entry a week and I want to make sure I can do a good job before I commit. And then some time passed and I think we emailed a couple times and then it just sort of fizzled out and then I thought you know what maybe something that has to do with CSAs because I had been doing a CSA since we lived in Philadelphia so I think 2006 maybe or 2005 or 2006 I had got my first CSA and I remember it always being a challenge from the beginning just kind of like what am I going to do with these radishes like I have no idea what a kohlrabi is like what is this but you know every year it gets easier and I would you know we moved to California and I would see a different set of produce we moved to Virginia I saw a different set of produce but there's so many challenges with CSAs you're either like you're overloaded with you know vegetables at one time or you get one single squash you know or how to store everything there was a period with my blog in the beginning where I was talking a lot about local food and kind of it, this happened when I was writing at the newspaper actually it's like the more you kind of start, start digging into where your food comes from you start thinking about everything so I started thinking about fish and then humanely raised meat and you know one thing leads to another so then I thought you know I don't want to annoy people either it's like I want to talk about it and I really care about it but people get it so I didn't want every kind of entry to talk about make sure that you're buying these like 
you know, carrots from the farm. And, you know, not everybody can do that. And it's not, you know, realistic for everybody. So I thought, well, you know, maybe this post on Food 52, it would just be nice if it's dedicated to kind of people who are, you know, getting CSAs or they're, you know, prolific gardeners or they go crazy at the farmer's market. That's how the original sort of what sort of like the editors decided there was like what to do with an overload of, you know, like potatoes or tomatoes. And so I thought it seemed like I loved, I mean, I would love to do that for my blog too, but it was kind of nice to have a space where, you know, if that interests people there, then they can go there. And it's also just been really great working with the people at Food 52 because they're obviously so passionate and they're so smart and they're just really fun to work with. Food 52 is definitely a website that I love to visit and get inspiration and learn from. Well, Ellie, here at the dinner special, we talk with food heroes about dishes that are special to them and how we can make it at home. Can you talk about a dish that is special to you and maybe the story behind the dish? Well, my mother's peasant bread is obviously a very special thing. I mean, I'm writing a cookbook about it with my mother. So I don't want to maybe like dwell on that. That recipe is on the blog. If anybody is afraid of bread making, that is the recipe. It's so simple. It's no need. You bake it in bowls. You're never messing your hands or dirtying a countertop. So many people have told me that recipe has sort of like allowed them to overcome their fear of yeast. But other than that, Maybe a dish I would say that's special to me is tinga, and it's a dish I learned at the restaurant. The way that I learned to make it from people I worked with, and this one woman, Patricia, she was the one who would sort of always make it, so I kind of always think of her, but she would take a whole chicken, she'd put it in a pot, boil it, shred the meat, you know, once it was cooked, but in the meantime, she'd saute an onion, she'd add garlic, chipotles and adobo, crushed tomatoes, chicken stock, and just sort of like stew that around, and then throw in the pulled chicken and then tons of cilantro. And it's just this like big bowl of just like comforting kind of chicken. And we would eat it with everything, like either, you know, tortillas, like tacos or like tostado, you know, they should fry tortillas and we, you know, lettuce and the chicken and sour cream. And I still make it today. It's like, I make it for people. It's like one of my favorite, it's just so good. And it's so simple and it feeds a lot of people. Well, let's say that you were having a dinner party and you were serving this tinga and you could invite three famous people over to share your tinga with. Who would you invite over? Oh my gosh. Okay. I think first would have to be Louis C.K. because I can watch his skits over and over, the same ones over and over and over again. And I will be hysterical at the same parts every single time. And he's just, I mean, I don't know. I love him. So he would have to be one. Probably my kitchen idol is Gabrielle Hamilton. I love her. I just think she is, one, she's this amazing writer. She's also just incredibly talented in the kitchen. She's just all business. And what I appreciated about the prune cookbook was there were certain parts where she would, I think one of the recipes is like, open up a tin of sardines, you know, and like put the tin on the plate. You know, it's like she's not trying to sort of like, make things what they aren't you know she's just kind of just very real and I think she might appreciate the tinga because it's just simple good food okay recently I've been watching <laughs> this show called Odd Mom Out a friend told me about it it's like it's totally hilarious if you are a mother I would say I, I don't know how many else other people would think it's hilarious but it's so funny I don't even know her name because it's only recently discovered the show but it's the main in the show her name is Jill <laughs> I don't know <laughs> So she's great. <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, let's say you were to have Louis, Gabrielle, and the character of Jill 
over for your tinga dish, and it was actually a, a dinner and a movie situation. What movie would you pair with your tinga? Okay, my favorite. I love any like British period piece. So there's this amazing series called Foil's War, and it takes place in England during World War II, and it's kind of the perspective of the war from people who are home. And it's always like a, there's always a murder. It's a murder mystery, and the main character. Oh, maybe he is somebody. DC, the character. I don't know his name either, but it's DCS Foil or whatever his name is. He's an amazing actor, and I don't know. There's eight seasons, maybe, and every episode is maybe an hour. It's incredible. That's gonna be a week or two week sort of marathon. <laughs> totally, yes, absolutely. Well, I call the next part of the dinner special podcast the pressure cooker. I'm going to ask you seven fast and fun questions that we want to know your answers to. Are you up for it? Sure. Great. Well, number one, which food shows or cooking shows do you watch? We canceled cable a few years ago, but we have Netflix and I have a Roku, so I'm not like totally cut off. But what I watched recently, which I really loved, was on Netflix. It's called A Chef's Table. It's in a Netflix original series, and it's six episodes. And two of them, well, I think they're all amazing. But I loved the one on Francis Melman. He's just such a character, and it's incredible the food he cooks in this episode on this like remote island in Patagonia. It's amazing. And then the other one was on Dan Barber, and it inspired me to read his book, The Third Plate. And now I'm on this. I want to like move to the Finger Lakes and meet all these farmers who are growing the wheat, bringing back these ancient grains and rotating their crops and doing all this kind of amazing work with wheat. So anyway, that's probably the latest I would recommend. Yeah. Great. Number two, what are some food blogs or websites we have to know about? Oh, I feel like everybody knows about the Food 52 Genius Recipes column, but it's definitely, I mean, I like look forward to Kristen's column. It's so good every week. I don't know how she does it. And what else? One that I just discovered recently, and it's, I've been taking books, cookbooks out from the library just because I own so many and I just need to, my library is amazing. You can take out 99 books at a time. So I have so many cookbooks, but there's this cookbook called Make the Bread by the Butter, and it's by Jennifer Reese. Her blog is called The Tipsy Baker, and I just discovered it, and I just love her writing style, and she's just funny. It's just a new discovery for me. I've been telling everybody I know. Number three, who do you follow on Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, or Snapchat that make you happy? Okay, Snapchat, somebody needs to explain to me. I think it's a sign that I'm way too old. I have no idea how to use it. I've tried, so I can't speak for Snapchat. I have to be honest. I feel like I hardly pay attention to Facebook anymore. I'm terrible. I don't check Facebook. Pinterest, I love Pinterest. I search for something, and then, and I think I follow a lot of people, but I don't actually go and kind of look at my feed. Instagram has become, I mean, I feel like I was very late to the Instagram game. I just didn't. It's so simple, and I don't know why it took me so long, but I finally, I get it, and I like it because it's simple. I really love the format. I follow a lot of people. Let's see. There's a photographer who does, and this is so random, but there's a photographer that does all the tartine bread books. His name's Eric Wolfinger, and I love his stuff. I always have. The books that he photographs, I find myself always going back to. Well, we'll go to your Instagram, and we'll see who you're following, and we'll check out your feed. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Great. Number four. What is the most unusual or treasured item you have in your kitchen? Well, I have these two random, I don't use them, but they're just beautiful to look at. One was a wedding gift. It's like a wooden baguette shaper. I mean, it's really long. I mean, it extends probably the full length, my arm span. 
And it was a wedding gift, you know, my godmother, she got it in France. And I have no use for it because I could never make baguettes that long. The wood is beautiful, it has just a nice finish. So that's hanging up. And then my aunt gave me this also enormous pizza peel that wouldn't even fit in my oven. You'd have to have a wood burning oven. And I have that hanging up also because it's so dramatic and enormous, but I don't use them. But they're beautiful. And they're treasured, yes. <laughs> Right. Well, number five, name one ingredient you used to dislike that you now love. It may be fish sauce. I hope that's not too obvious, but I remember the first time I can picture it. I was in Philadelphia in our little apartment, and I remember a recipe called for fish sauce, and I opened the bottle, and I said to Ben, like, this smells like dirty socks. I don't understand how I can actually put this on my food. This is crazy. And then I did it because I thought, well, I'm going to try it. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> like, You do not smell dirty feet anymore. It just tastes delicious. So I would say fish sauce. Number six, what are a few cookbooks that make your life better? I know you mentioned that you have tons of cookbooks. So are there a couple that make your life better? Okay, a couple of my favorites are Chez Panisse Vegetables is one that I have turned. It's probably one of the first cookbooks. I mean, my mom gave it to me, I think maybe when I graduated from college. So it's just something every season. Part of it is because I do that column for Food 52, but part of it is just because I'm always getting a CSA. But that is a book I turn to over and over and over again. The Zuni Cafe cookbook is one I flip through a lot. How to Be a Domestic Goddess, Nigella Lawson's. I mean, it's... I remember a friend gave it to me in college and I never initially used it. And I don't love making kind of like cakes with frostings and things like that, but there is so much in that book. So like so much good content and she is such a good writer and I love her voice and her stories and a number of her, there's a recipe in there for her like processor Danish paste. It's like a cheater's way to make essentially like croissant like dough. And it's an amazing recipe and technique. And I love that one. And finally, number seven, what song or album just makes you want to cook? This is going to be also so random, too. I think back again, I don't know why, maybe because Philadelphia was, was when I really started cooking a lot, but we would listen to the, I would listen to the soundtrack of the Buena Vista Social Club over and over again. So if I hear that music, I associate being in the kitchen, and that would make me want to cook. Well, congratulations, Ali. You have officially survived the pressure cooker. Fantastic. Ali, thank you so much for joining me here on the Dinner Special Podcast. Now, you're all over social media. What's the best way for us to keep up with what you're up to? I post, I do all the things I'm supposed to do. I do a post and I post it to Facebook. I tweet, post it to Instagram. But I find social media exhausting and hard to keep up with. And I prefer to just follow people by subscribing directly to their websites and just I guess I'm kind of old school. I like getting an email when they post. Awesome. Well, the website is alexandracooks.com. That's correct. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Ali, for taking the time to chat with me. I had a great time. I hope you did too. I did. Thank you so much, Gabriel. It was so nice. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to thedinnerspecial.com for recipes, highlights from every show, super blog articles, and all the wonderful ways to keep in touch on social media. Your culinary journey awaits, so let's get cooking.